It seems to me that there's an intangible inevitability to collecting things. Whether it's blown glass, forged metal or soft textiles, how we accumulate and own objects is unique to each of us. There's a question of taste, yes, but also sometimes a kind of destiny at work. There are those jackets you try on and feel like you've owned for years. There are those objects or curiosities that seem to find you in flea markets and shops. And then there are those things that feel like interlopers on their way to another shelf, vitrine or wardrobe. This show looks at the meaning behind the things we own and love and the craft and emotion that goes into everyday things. We meet a knife maker in her small London studio, speak to an entrepreneur who deals in antique linens and beautiful crockery, a champion of the French art de vivre. And finally, we muse upon the iconic white airtex and green turf that signals June's tennis season is here. I'm your host, Sophie Grove, and this is Confect Corner. You know, you're elevating everyday moments when you're using things that make you happy, even if you're by yourself. I might go to an Airbnb, and if I'm using a teacup or a coffee cup that's so uninteresting to me, I'm just kind of like, ah, now I, I see the feeling I get when I sit by myself at my home and I have a teacup that I love. My game is idiosyncratic. A weak serve, coupled with a lackluster second, helps give my opponent a false sense of security. I wanted to figure out how to do it, but he was really secretive about it. And that almost helped because I think if he had told me, then yeah, maybe it wouldn't have sent me on the same journey to try and find out how to do it myself. Welcome to Confect Corner. I'm your host, Sophie Grove in London, and today we're doing things a little differently. My regular sidekicks, Julian Tobias and Marcella Palak, are seeking stories out at the moment on the continent. So today I'll be co-presenting this edition of Confect Corner with our deputy editor, Chiara Rumella. Welcome to the show, to the studio. It's a pleasure, Sophie. I basically trail you like a shadow wherever you go. Well, I'm very happy to have you. We've been a bit of a dynamic duo for the last couple of weeks trying to put the wonderful summer edition of Confect to bed, as it were. It's currently being printed in Hamburg, but it was actually a kind of amazing sort of whirlwind of beautiful summer. I feel like we've sort of travelled somehow when we were editing that piece. Definitely. I think that in a way, doing our jobs is slightly altering our perception of the seasons. I'm so bitterly disappointed at spring not quite being over yet, just because we've been essentially inhabiting summer for the last month or so, and we've been travelling to, I don't want to give too much away, but some pretty sunny Greek isles and wonderful kind of park hotels in the Alps. Mediterranean locations are plenty. So right now, rainy London feels a little bit tight. I know. It's funny because I think that is the metabolism of the magazine. It's so steeped in each season and you can't help but invest in every single wonderful tomato, the strawberries, the scents of the beach and then you actually kind of come almost to sort of step out of your wonderful bubble. But maybe that means we're doing our job well, if we're completely invested, (laughs) already wearing espadrilles. Exactly. (laughs) That is the only drawback, that I have been wearing sandals for two months. (laughs) No, it's been a pleasure. And I have to say, the occasion of making this our travel special means that we've really kind of been able to properly spread our wings a little further, this issue. So hopefully we'll also touch down in places that our readers haven't quite had a chance to explore yet. Well, we usually start with something that's caught our attention in recent weeks. Chiara, what's caught your eye this month? So I guess with my culture editor hat on, because I do also do the culture section for Monocle, I went to a really outstanding exhibition. I love photography. I find it one of my favourite artistic mediums. And so I go to the Photographer's Gallery in Soho quite frequently. In fact, every time they turn it around and have something new. And I went to see the Deutsche Borsa Prize, which essentially presents the four nominees for the prize. And despite not being eventually the winner, I think the work of South African photographer Joe Ratcliffe really stayed with me. Her images are black and white shots of almost empty landscapes. And I have a bit of a soft spot for those kind of slightly haunted images that 
speak of human presence in its absence. You know, these former factories, there's a wonderful image of, for example, a former factory dishabited with just a single donkey standing in the middle. And it gives you that sense of nature coming in and humans being elsewhere. And I find that really, really haunting and beautiful. And then I have to say another very recent thing I did. Last night I had the absolute pleasure of going for dinner somewhere quite exciting. I was invited by a brand that makes cashmere items out of yak wool from the Tibetan plateau and they hosted us at this incredible antiques shop in Chelsea that I hadn't been to before called Hao and the whole thing kind of worked out really wonderfully even though you had kind of Tibet in West London and it was a really delightful evening that not only introduced me to this really tactile kind of beautiful shawls scarves all sorts of things which perhaps are not quite so in line with our summer theme but also my dining companion the person who was to my left at the party I have to say I was very lucky with seating arrangements gave me a great tip which I had no idea about before which is to go to this antiques market in London called Kempton It's a market that takes place on the first and last Tuesday of the month. And you're really supposed to go there at like 5am if you want to get the good stuff, which is how you can tell this is a real market. It's not just for tourists. Like you have to be willing to get there 4 or 5am in the morning to really get your hand on some proper I'm with bargain. you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm setting my alarm clock as we speak. <laughs> What about you, Sophie? What has caught your eye this month? On the subject really of beautiful furniture, it's been Clark and Well Design Week, but it's been wonderful for London because it has been two years, I think, since it's been running. It's nice to see London back in its groove again. All the designers, architects and creatives that are based here sort of at symposiums, talking about the future of design, recalibrating what's happened over the last couple of years and how that impacts their practice. It's really nice also just there's a buzz in not just Clerkenwell, in fact, just all over London. And I was walking past a workshop right near my house in London Fields and I noticed that something was opening so I was peering through the window <laughs> <laughs> like a typical nosy neighbour and it turns out that Fred Rigby, this brilliant designer, he's Devon-born, he creates these beautiful kind of boucle, white sculptural sofas, very amazing wooden pieces. He's opening up there and I was very happy to see it, partly because I love his work and then I'll be neighbours with him. But also... Hopefully just, getting a neighbourhood discount. <laughs> yes, exactly. All I need is another white boucle sofa in my life. It's also just interesting to see that in a neighbourhood like where I live in East End, we've seen makers being pushed out, essentially replaced by residential developers. And I think it's really important to the fabric of a neighbourhood to have some of that art ateliers, those artisans around. For me, it makes a neighbourhood. So I'm happy to see him there for more reasons than one. You make such a fair point, Sophie. And I feel like there are other cities. I mean, I'm Italian, so I think that Italy's relationship with its artisanal past is perhaps a little bit more obvious on the streets. But I think it's something that London could definitely benefit so much from there are so many workshops actually in the countryside but I think in London they're really tucked away and and often hidden and the city could really come alive with these places agreed well now we begin today's program in the south of France Provence to be exact where entrepreneur Ajiri Aki is currently hiding out as she finishes her next book With a background in fashion and a degree in the decorative arts, Aki settled in Paris in 2011 and found she spent most of her time browsing the city's many brocantes. Six years later, her homeware and antiques brand, Madame de la Maison, was born. She joined us a little earlier to talk about founding her brand, tips and tricks for sun-soaked hosting and the importance of joie de vivre. I think for me, the first time I was really sort of drawn to this idea of like, you know, finding treasure in other people's things was as a young girl, I would go to garage sales in Texas, in Austin, Texas, where I grew up. I'm Nigerian and we moved to Texas, Austin when I was young. And so my mother loved going to garage sales. So we would always go to these garage sales. And, you know, I was kind of the person she always took with her. And, you know, I was a little embarrassed in the beginning to go. But, you know, she would say, you know, one man's trash is another man's treasure. And so... That kind of put this idea in my head that, you know, something that someone's passed on that they don't want to use anymore could be a treasure for me. And these pieces that have stories and maybe I didn't catch that real lesson, but it was sort of like a seed that was planted with me 
And then, you know, later as I moved to France, where I was like, oh, digging through people's quote unquote trash here is like beautiful design treasures. So definitely that sort of planted a seed in me for digging through other things. But, you know, then also I would say it's studying the decorative arts for my master's where I learned about design and the different periods of design. So when I am now going to look through things, I can connect what I've learned. And it's more exciting for me because I'm seeing pieces that I recognize learning about, you know, iconography and ornamentation. And how did this passion and this dedication eventually turn into a business? How did you start your brand, Madame de la Maison? And what was the journey that took you there? Well, I moved to Paris almost 11 years ago. This fall will be 11 years. And, you know, when you move to a new place, inviting people to your home, inviting people to your table is a really important and a great way to find connection and a sense of community with people. So that is what I did. You know, I was always inviting friends over. And I had a friend, my friend Tara, who was just, you know, kind of like, Azri, you're so good at this, like making everyone feel comfortable And she just sort of like urging and pushing me to like kind of dig deep into like something that I loved and I needed for survival. And, you know, I just kind of realized, okay, I also love going to flea markets because that's what people do here in France. It's like a big deal to go to the Brocante or the Pousse or to a Vigrenier. You know, they're just like different terms of Brocante is like more professional. But I realized that's something that I love and to, to realize that I could gathering people at my table is something that I did for community and like necessity for survival and for joy, but also then bringing together something that I enjoyed, which is the decorative arts and putting those two things together. So gathering at the table, but making it beautiful. And then out of that, a couple of glasses of wine later, we have Madame de la Maison. And there's a lot of creativity in the way you style a table. And it really comes across in your aesthetic. There's a sense that you're really exploring. But it's nice that you're telling stories. And it really struck me that you just said, you know, you, what you did is create that connection. I think that sometimes people who are hosting often forget that it is about the people and it's about tactility and intimacy and joy rather than maybe even kind of showing off and this idea of perfection. Can you tell me a bit about your approach to sort of putting it all together and this kind of art de table? Yeah, I will say there's this lovely quote. Maya Angelou says, you know, people might not remember what you said or what you did, but they'll always remember how you made them feel. And for me, that's so important because I think when I came here, of course, I was like, trying to make some like fancy meals to impress people and to be perfect. And that wasn't fun for me. That was not the connection and the joy and the like, that wasn't the joy that my soul needed in any way. The people left your house and you felt horrible after. I think gathering around the table and inviting people over and setting a table, you know, whatever you do at your table, it is about the people. And I started to see that, that the French really do that well, realizing that it's about purpose You know, what is the purpose that you're inviting people to your table? And it's about purpose. It is not about perfection. And as you said, people forget that. And I think living here and having a few mess ups make me realize I don't want to not invite people over because I'm worried about like everything being perfect and having, you know, some gastronomical like Michelin star meal, you know, the purpose for me is, you know, I pull out, I open my cabinet with all these beautiful things that I've collected over time. And I set the table and also you want people to feel good when they're in your space. And if you're actually spending time with them and you're feeling good, then they will feel good too. You know, like I said about with the quote. Speaking of other things that can bring happiness to the everyday, I mean, you spoke so eloquently and beautifully about this idea that hosting people is about that happiness. But what about also the everyday and the way that you present things to yourself? Um, what about things that we tend to keep in our cupboards, that we tend to wait for a big occasion to bring out? You've spoken about this in the Confect article beautifully also. Why do you think that it's important that we use our beautiful things day in, day out? Well, why did you buy them? You know, you bought them because they make you happy, because they make you smile, because you thought they were beautiful, because whether you went to a store or a flea market, you chose something for its beauty, for its design, for something and like what made you connect with it. 
So why should you not use them every day? You should. You yourself are deserving of using good, beautiful things every single day. So it doesn't make any sense. You know, and I also tell a story about how my mother had this beautiful wedding china that, I mean, she worshiped this wedding china. She loved it so much and she would never use it because she was like, oh, I don't want it to get broken. You know, I don't want anyone to ruin it. And then she died. I don't think we ever used that china. And that's so sad, you know, like we're on this earth and she worshiped so much that we had the sideboard that she had it in as this display case. And I take that and I apply it to every area of my life with clothes, with things that I bring to the table. You know, you're elevating everyday moments when you're using things that make you happy. Even if you're by yourself, I might go to an Airbnb and if I'm using a teacup or a coffee cup that's so uninteresting to me, I'm just kind of like, ah, now I, I see the feeling I get when I sit by myself at my home and I have a teacup that I love. I think that's so important to use design that, you know, makes you feel good, that brings you joy. And not to be like my mother who saved precious things that made her so happy and then she passed away and never got to use those things. I mean, it's interesting to talk about that in the context of also going to a flea market or a brocon and just almost fishing for these items that have had previous lives and then inhabiting them with something new. I just wondered whether you could give an insight into how you kind of fish for new things and how you would kind of recommend people to approach setting a table. I know you've done some beautiful events recently for big fashion labels and other houses in France, styling and creating this sense of of celebration. But is there any way you could boil down a few of your kind of philosophies into a few tips for our listeners? Well, for one, when you see something, what it's maybe created for, you can create your own story with that item. So an oyster fork is also a dessert fork. A beautiful old like 1930s apothecary jar is a flower vase. A champagne bucket is a flower vase. That's really how I look at these things. When I, That's my eye when I'm walking through a flea market. Of course, I see the use of something, but I see alternative uses, many multiple uses for them. So I think that, you know, maybe that's why my approach to styling a table might be slightly different because I kind of break out of the rules and the uses for things. And I'm able to kind of like, I don't know, not feel restricted. I'm not big on rules. I play with rules in different ways. So I think tips would be when you see something, there's multiple ways to use it. There's multiple ways to play with color. If you want to mix and match, mix and match. If all the plates still aren't exactly the same plates, you know, maybe there's a color theme that you're working with. Um, maybe you just love blue plates. So you go and you buy a bunch of blue plates and you set your table with like a theme of blue. Maybe it's you go to the flea market and you see a lot of like beautiful, you know, like there's always this little sad, like one teacup. There's not a set anymore. That's great. You know, the saucers for those teacups are beautiful bread plates or they're beautiful, like a plate where you maybe you're setting some vegetables around with a little dip in the center. You know, Everything has a story, but you can, you're also giving it a new story when you buy it and when you play with it and when you create with it. I also was curious about finding out what is in the book that you're currently working on. We know that we catch you at a time when it's very much under production. And I get a hint that it is about this sense of happiness or perhaps in a much Frencher way of saying, of talking about it, about joie de vivre. Yeah. So the book is called Joie. It's a Parisian's guide to celebrating the good life. And, you know, I realized after living here for so long that there's so many lessons that I've learned from living in France, from living in Paris, about what I feel like is a really good life and finding joie de vivre. I mean, joie de vivre is finding little bits of joy in life every single day. It's something so simple as going and sitting to have a cafe by yourself or with a friend, just taking those moments for yourself. I love this idea of loafing, like being a flaneur or a flaneuse wherever you live where, you know, everything's not scheduled. It's, you know, having lunch. You're working a long day. You deserve to have an hour 
to sit down and have lunch with a friend by yourself, you, you know, close the computer, you're not working. These are things that I've learned from the French. You know, I moved here as a New Yorker. And this book is really all about these lessons that I've learned that anybody can apply anywhere. But it's also like you feel like you have a better quality of life, a good life, if you're doing these little things that bring you connection, pleasure, and like what brings you pleasure, being with people, like slowing down, like relaxing. So that's what I'm sharing. And that's what Joie de Vivre is, is, you know, injecting a little bit of spontaneity and pleasure into your life every day. So tell me, have you picked up any sort of French tradition of the Grand Vacances, you know, lovely meals outside on terraces? Is there anything that we should be sort of adopting for our summer routines? Yes. The French work to live and not live to work. It's so important. And you work all year round. So, you you know, summer vacation is a huge thing here. You know, Paris is dead in August. And also... My God, if you spend your time, they're so crazy about planning their vacations. And scientifically, it actually makes you happy and joyous when you have something to look forward to. So plan your vacation early. But you know, when you're, you go on vacation, disconnect. They also have something here in France called the droit de déconnexion. You have the right to disconnect. And when they do that in the summer, they turn off their phones. They're not checking their emails. So you're really present and you're enjoying this moment. You know, it's about the seasons. It's the summer season. So enjoy this summer season. Eat outside. Have fresh salads and, and fruits and eat rosé, like easy things. Sit around a pool. Really enjoy that season. And it's the season of summer. It's a season of disconnection. It's a season of really relaxing because we all deserve it. We need it. Scientifically, we need it. We're more productive if we do that. We're better humans if we have that moment. So for sure, I've picked that up and you won't find me in August. <laughs> Ajiri Aki there, founder of lifestyle brand Madame de la Maison. Sophie, I'm curious, if you are hosting at home, what do you think about more, the food or the table setting? Both. I can't deny <laughs> that I don't think a lot about the table setting because I think it's that moment when you feel really welcomed and that sense of colour and texture. I really love my table and I love being able to see the wood, but then I don't like clattering. So Ajiri's definitely got lots of solutions for that type of dilemma. I love that sense of richness, that sense of kind of, contrast old and new and I've also scoured many <laughs> brocants and flea markets in Paris looking for bits and bobs I love a sense of pattern I have sort of this flatware from this brand called Sabre which I picked up in Saint-Germain-de-Prix when I lived there it's bright orange acetate and I sort of mix it with old Christoffel silver and bits of beautiful kind of textiles I've picked up from along the way so it's it's not very uniform all I can say <laughs> all the more characterful for that tell me about your table well, I guess I have a slightly more minimalist approach, I have to say. I'm more of a kind of sand tone ceramic from Japan type of person. But I think that's something that Ajiri talks about quite a lot is this idea that there are so many things that we pick up and that we think are almost too precious and that we need to get them out of the cabinet and onto the table. And I get that. I get the idea of kind of making beautiful things part of your everyday because it enriches you. But I also do quite like the idea of having certain things that you you keep to a side and that you really use for proper spatial occasions. There's specifically a set of cutlery that I'm particularly attached to. It's actually at my parents' house. So it was given to them for their wedding. It's their proper kind of full wedding set. Sambonet cutlery from Italy. Shiny, really weighty, sumptuous, rounded kind of forks and spoons. Amazing. I loved it. And I particularly love it because it always used to come out at Christmas, at birthdays. So immediately the sensation of this weighty cutlery, of the wonderful smooth metal on your palate brings you back to those long kind of multi-course dinners and the amount of effort that went into it. So in a way, I'm glad that that box only came out of the cupboard once a year because it really made it super special. She talks very interestingly about that. And I think it's a sense that that does come out at some point because the temptation with something really special is that 
oh, to put it off and put it off, and then it never comes out. But it, that sense of occasion, I think, is really important, and changing the tablescape every now and then is really nice. I've got this tablecloth. It was made in the Basque region by this brand called Jean Vier, and it's just blue and wonderful, and it comes out, and I always feel I'm turning the page somehow. There is a sense of occasion, and you can have that wonderful celebration, and then it all goes back into a cupboard. It just shouldn't stay there for too long. <laughs> no, exactly. And I think that sometimes, even if one of those precious ceramic cups does get broken, it was worth it. Next up on Conflict Corner, we keep things a little closer to our HQ and head to South London, to the studio of Holly Loftus, maker of Loftus Knives. Handmade kitchen utensils are items to be held in high regard. As well as their unique appearance, they often perform the task at hand better and last longer, becoming prized possessions that endure the test of time. We went along to the studio of one maker who produces such an item with care and craftsmanship. Confect Sophie Monaghan Coombs went along to witness Loftus at work and observe the care and craftsmanship that goes into producing such an item. Chopping, slicing and dicing are all part of most of our daily lives. For anyone who spends time in the kitchen, picking up a knife is an everyday occurrence and one in which the quality of the utensil can change our experience of cooking. Everyone knows the frustration of attempting to chop a tomato and using a blade that merely squashes rather than cleanly cleaves the fruit in two. On the other hand, using a knife with a sharp, precise blade can be an act of great satisfaction. For many of us, we rarely consider why and how there's a difference between them or what goes into making a knife of particularly high calibre. Holly Loftus is a knife maker based in Deptford in London who makes hand-forged chef knives. It's an unusual job, and while the number of hobbyist knife makers is on the rise in the UK, Holly believes she's the only woman doing this full-time in the entire country. Holly didn't have a craft background before a chance encounter led her to become enamoured by the idea of making knives. I was on a trip on a holiday in America and I met a hobbyist knife maker and I'd like never thought about knife making before that. And I guess I just always assumed that they were, that knives were made in factories kind of stamped out by machines and... I don't know, maybe finished by machines. And this guy was making them just in his garage. And yeah, it just sparked something in my brain where I wanted to figure out how to do it. But he was really secretive about it. And that almost helped because I think if he had told me, then yeah, maybe it wouldn't have sent me on the same journey to try and find out how to do it myself. She began by researching the craft online, but coming at it as an absolute beginner meant that niche forums and YouTube rabbit holes could only take her so far. In the UK, there's no kind of professional routes into knife making, where in America, there are places you could go to be taught or it's more common that you could find someone to do an apprenticeship with. So my first kind of route into knife making was to do a course for farriers, so like for horseshoe makers. and that was the closest I could get because I knew that I wanted to forge knives, which is kind of blacksmith style hammer and anvil. But yeah, the only way to do that basically was to learn how to do horseshoeing. And everyone else on the course was a teenage boy. <laughs> and yeah, we were like aliens to each other, you know. After the course, she trained at Blenheim Forge in nearby Peckham before she went full-time on her own. And now, by the time that I'm visiting Holly, she's been making small batches of knives in her studio for over two years. It's a laborious and intricate process. So, I'm using a kind of centuries-old method of blade construction, which I learned when I was with Blenheim Forge. So... I'm laminating the steel, which basically means like, kind of like making a croissant where there's loads of layers. So, but the layers for me are different metals. And so you sandwich them all together 
and then squash it out and then cut it up and fold it again and again. And that creates the kind of patterns that you can see on the surface of the blade, like on the finished knife. The wavy lines on it aren't a pattern that I apply to it later. It's actually the construction of the blade visible in the finished piece. It's not just for decoration. It's like a way of making the knife where I can have a really sharp edge. In different spots and hidden in drawers around the workshop are knives in various stages of creation, from slabs of metal to ones halfway made that resemble crude knife shapes. Let's see if I have one. So, yeah, I start by making the steel and then I take a piece of that steel and then I start to forge it to shape. So that's like literally hammer and anvil, starting with a piece smaller than the finished knife and hammering it until it becomes the like right proportions for the knife. And then from then, I kind of cut out the the final shape of the blade and then from then I'd bring it so all that is happening when it's really hot so like when I'm forging the steel you get it to a kind of temperature where it's almost like plasticine so when you're hammering it you're able to really like move it in a way that's kind of unimaginable when it's you know like these pieces and after they're forged I bring them in here and I start using these kind of machines which are like they're basically like sanders for metal and they're all different abrasives that I use and that's how I thin them so to make them start to have the geometry where they'd be able to become a sharp knife. Forging is like the most fun part of the process but it's probably like 10% of making the knife so then all the kind of thinning and stuff that happens takes a really long time. Once Holly has perfected the knives, she makes the wooden handles. She uses native timbers from trees that have been felled in the city. You and London Plain are particular favourites of hers. Taking a knife from start to finish is no small feat. There are 30 knives in Holly's workshop in different stages at any given time. She decides what kind of knife she'd like to make. At the moment, early stage paring knives litter the central table in the workshop and she might finish up to three knives in a week. It remains a unique craft, practiced by few and professionalised by even less, but one that produces a very special version of an everyday object. Because my knives are entirely made in-house by me, I'm able to make decisions that a factory would never be able to make. Like I can get smaller bits of wood that a factory would never use because it's so inefficient. And the same with the steel or even the sharpness of the knives the factory kind of they're mitigating against returns you know they don't want the knives to come back so they make it kind of blunt enough for people to tolerate and to withstand abuse where I'm kind of making something that if you look after it it'll be a much better knife and something kind of a bit more personal and I don't know I really like that you can see that it's handmade and then I love that it's goes on to just be used by people, hopefully, for a really long time. Holly Loftus there, the maker of Loftus Knives, in conversation with Sophie Monaghan Coombs. Now, Chiara, I believe I've already spoken perhaps at length about my favourite kitchen utensils before. So let's start with you. Do you have a prized piece of South London kitchen that stood the test of time? Well, actually, I'd like to take you to the kitchen of my grandma. We've talked about grandmas quite a lot in Confect and I think on this programme also because they hold this really special place, I think, in terms of determining where your place is in life and rooting yourself to your family. And my grandmother's kitchen is a place that is so strong in my memory. And the knife that I associate closely to her is the so-called mezzaluna knife. So that item that you use to chop onions kind of sideways, so it's shaped a little bit like a crescent moon and it's got two handles on the side. And she had this wooden board that was really carved into by how much she'd been using the mezzaluna on it. And every single meal, as you will know, every single Italian meal starts with a soffritto. So onion, carrots, celery, into the pan, into the oil, and it's that 
such a comforting smell that comes out of the kitchen within the marriage of these ingredients. And it always starts with the mezzaluna, chop, 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 chopping it all or horizontally. So that is definitely my favourite knife. They call it the Holy Trinity, the kind yeah. of triumvirate of those three ingredients. <laughs> I really believe in it. It has a sort of ecstatic, like out-of-body aspect. I think that it really taps into really profound memories. Again, we've talked about this for Confect in terms of what smell really connects you to childhood, what smell connects you to comfort. And I think those memories of kind of early hiding underneath the table in the kitchen really stay with you for a very long time. And when you are the person hosting it kind of carries through that generosity in the food you're making, I think. Yeah, it's very interesting. And I think being in that state of just cooking, it can be very distracting and a nice space for people and kind of weirdly de-stressing, kind of taking you somewhere else. But in that moment, sometimes you do remember your ancestors. It's quite a powerful experience. I think so. Some of the things that I'm very proud of in my kitchen, I have a set of glasses that I actually picked up from a local store in Broccoli in South East London where I live. And they are made by cutting very finely the bottom half of a green bottle of wine so that they look like perfect tumblers and they actually are very comely but I bought them from a shop that the whole point is that it's recycling, reusing, not bringing any packaging etc. They actually have become some of the most beautiful objects in my kitchen I think despite costing me a penny pretty much and not being very expensive to make. And then the other thing that I'm very attached to is a set of ceramics, modern ceramics made in Santo Stefano di Camastra which is one of Sicily's ceramics town. There are plenty of kind of ceramics towns across Italy and Santo Stefano di Camastra is one of them. And I remember going on a pilgrimage with my friend. We drove a little motorbike. I was at the front, she was at the back and we went all the way from Cefalu all the way there, driving through the streets just on this ceramics pilgrimage where we finally picked up this horde of ceramics which we then carried all the way back and into our suitcases so they are very Any very casualties fun. along the way I imagine a few. <laughs> actually not so I'm very very proud that they still stand the test of time in my kitchen what about you Sophie back to knives I have a beautiful knife which is made I mean, in Japan, it's the global knife, and I use it really for everything. It was given to me by a really dear friend who then moved promptly to Denver, Colorado. And I sometimes blame the knife, because you do know that if you give someone a knife as a gift and they're a friend, you have to wrap it in some money. Otherwise, you can sever the friendship symbolically with that knife. And I'm not sure we did that, so it may have been the knife. You brought traction upon yourself. What I love is when I pick it up and chop, with it even though it's obviously quite a macabre thing I always remember her and I think that's so often that Mm -hmm. it's like she's always there and she also gave me another knife which is obviously why she moved which is (laughs) for sabering the top of champagne bottles Is there a specific knife for that? There is, yeah And you own one? I own one (laughs) How frequently do you use it? (laughs) I actually was once an assistant to a sabre person he was an ex-military guy we used to go to parties I'd wear a ball gown hold the bottle and he would chop it off with a ceremonial sword and that's what I did for two summers of my <laughs> every night I yeah, hope every night you have to have a it's almost like being a circus act because you have to have a very steady hand and not a phobia of blades <laughs> I guess Normally, I'm in charge of the Culture Corner for Confect Corner, but given that this month our Gillian Debias has been on the road, I wanted to bring her onto the guest chair for once and swap places. Gillian, what have you been up to? Well, it's a great story to be talking to you about, Chiara, because it's all based in Italy and it's about Italian craftsmanship. I was given a great assignment to make a film for Chanel and Monocle's Masterclass, which is going to be in Florence. The beauty of the Masterclass class is it's for students. It covers all aspects of the fashion industry from past traditions to really sustainability, modern techniques, where the future is going. And my mission was to look at Italian savoir-faire, Italian know-how, how these skills are at risk of dying out, and yet how each small firm is really making sure that the older generation pass on the skills 
to a younger generation and very much with the help of Chanel to kind of preserve these ateliers. So that was my road trip around Italy. What kind of locations <laughs> did you stop off at? I want to hear a, a little bit of a night Henry. <laughs> well, we first headed to the Ancona region on the Adriatic coast. And there we found a heritage firm called Paima. They specialise in knitting. Originally, the grandparents, they specialised in machines for the knitting that the women in the village would knit with. You know, fast forward, they became, you know, the experts in intricate complex knitting, developing machines, developing techniques that sort of nowhere can this kind of knitting be done. So all the Maison de Luxe come to them. They work with the creative directors and the artisans and the technicians, a lot of R&D, to come up with really, really special and exclusive knits. So that was Tour one. Well, what I will say is that I've been fortunate enough to do some of these stories over the course of the years as like an Italian speaker. I've headed back to my home country quite a few times. And it's remarkable when you get to these places, which are completely unassuming, you would never think that the most important creative directors all around Europe regularly pay a visit. <laughs> it's quite remarkable. And I think that combination between kind of creativity and humble nature mm. is what makes it fantastic. When you were talking Talking to the owners of these workshops, what kind of sense of pride did you get out of them? What kind of sense of belonging in the industry did you get out of them? Well, you absolutely nailed it, the word pride. We visited four, and each time at some point in the conversation became this word pride. Pride that they have in being able to creatively match the vision of these creative directors pride that they're able to get better and better and better, pride that they're able to instill that sense of perfectionism in a new generation. And without doubt, it just was the one common denominator. I want to or talk- no, many common denominators, skill, perfection, creativity, quality, but pride was really way up there. <laughs> I wanted to also ask you what kind of young people are coming through the ranks? What kind of apprentices did you meet? And how do they get to these places? Well, interestingly enough, a lot of the young people are maybe third generation. Their mm. grandparents worked with the fibres, with the knitting, with the jewellery. Their parents did, and now they do. And they were told that when the older generation are retiring, they timidly go up and say, would it be okay if I introduce you to my grandson or my granddaughter? They're really keen to learn the craft. I think it is people from the local area that have known the illustrious heritage of these firms and aspire to be part of it. But it is it takes up a lot of dedication, so it takes a certain kind of young person to really apply themselves to this. I think it's really interesting. Another common thread that comes up in a lot of the reporting that I've been doing on artisanship and fashion in this type of way is that sometimes this type of expertise almost skips a generation. The grandparents' generation was part of this fabric, and then the parents, because it was the economic boom or whatever other direction they decided to take with their lives, moved away from these traditional métiers and now the third generation is the one that's coming back. I guess you can see that across so many different industries, artisanship, farming. Do you think that that's also something that you've observed in all of this reporting that you've done? Very perceptive because we're filming and you really notice that generation gap and it has skipped a generation. I think partly there was a time when a lot of the the younger generation growing up did not want to do what their parents did. Craftsmanship and artisan skills was not what they aspired to. They wanted to go to the cities and they wanted to work in finance and get a degree in law. And they really, really were ambitious for very, very different things than their parents. And I think the world has changed and craftsmanship isn't something that's fuddy-duddy anymore. Artisanal skills are not something that is old-fashioned. There is something about it, I think, working with your hands that it appeals to a younger generation. I really think it does. And we'll see what happens moving forward if, again, it's going to be the generational shift. But we could visually, visually see it with these sort of young 16, 17, 18-year-olds and the the wrinklies about to retire. Well, we really look forward to watching those films, Gillian. Thank you so much to Gillian DeBias. You're with Comfort Corner. And now, with the final of Roland Gojo around the corner, we wanted to turn to the clay court, 
A tennis match can be a metaphor for life. Pretty much anything can happen, but there are ways of exercising some control, as the journalist Fleur MacDonald found out. I took up tennis early in life, and in spite of hundreds of lessons and a couple of decades, my serve, stroke and volley have never given any indication of the hours and days that I have spent on court. I cannot recall a winning streak, only some magnificent losses. In still unexplained circumstances, I was named tennis captain for my college at university. I presided over a season in which our team didn't win a single game, let alone a set or a match. Our best player, it turned out, had a brain tumour, benign luckily, that somehow became a badge of honour. Sisyphus had nothing on us. I started playing more regularly when I joined a club a few years ago. It's remarkable how quickly characters became clear. There was Cathy, the Irish accountant in her 50s, who would tuck spare balls into the sweaty crevasse of her cleavage. I imagined her targeting tax loopholes with the same intensity with which she fired the ball into the tramlines. Or Stephen, a middle-aged man who turned out to be in his 70s and a poster boy for the orthopaedics accessories industry. Cushioned by braces at every joint, he remained sharply disagreeable, seething with rage at every unforced error. That tennis club, with its slightly worn mock Tudor facade, tucked deep into a pocket of London's Maida Vale, has a literary heritage. In one of my favourite essays of his, Martin Amis, a former member, writes about the joy he gets from tennis and the five-month winning streak he once experienced. He ends with the realisation that he was getting too old to play as well as he wished. He gave up. In another classic, Derivative Sport in Tornado Alley, David Foster Wallace describes how he tailored his shots to the Midwest wind. This allowed him to play well, but only in precise circumstances. Tennis has always appealed to writers. In Henry V, Shakespeare describes the war between France and England as a tennis match. Indeed, the tennis ball works well as a felt-lined metaphor for our existence, a plaything of the gods, endlessly buffeted between Eros and Thanatos, yin or yang, or any other divine binary you wish to imagine. But we're in the 21st century now, an age in which humans do their best to act like they're in control. As I unsheath my racket, I like to think of myself as the hero. It stems from my utter conviction that I play tennis in the same way I approach life. This is not necessarily a good thing. For a glimpse into the soul, a session on the court is as instructive as one on the couch. No bright starched whites for me. I aspire to stroll on wearing faded leggings and a baggy t-shirt and then demolish my opponent with a few crisp shots and endless clever strategies. This has never happened. Instead, I play mostly distractedly, but with occasional flashes of brilliance. My game is idiosyncratic. A weak serve, coupled with a lacklustre second, helps give my opponent a false sense of security. My baseline shots are long and forceful. The cross-court backhand, whose success I can predict as soon as I strike the ball, is my killer move. My volley is erratic, mostly a liability. Being close to my opponent brings too much pressure. Yet I play better in front of an audience, and I've had to work hard on not saying, sorry, after every mishit. My real weakness, however, is my focus. It always ends up drifting. In the end, that's the great leveller. Tennis is a game of the mind. Of course, tennis greats, such as Williams or Graf, have certain physiological advantages. But it's about deciding where the ball will go. When I play a blinder, I feel I have mastery over my own fate. 
Those are the moments that spur me to keep at it. At a local club or on centre court, we're all playing the same game. And despite the score, I still remember that summer at university as replete with possibility. Tennis, like life, is a sport where anything can happen. That was the journalist Fleur MacDonald there. Chiara, does that essay speak to you at all? Do you think there's kind of lessons to be learnt on the court? Well, I think that there are lessons to be learnt about learning when not to exercise control and when to exercise control. Whether I can do that on a tennis court is debatable. I am famously very bad at tennis. I don't try it very often because out of the absolute shame of it, I have stayed very far away from the clay court for a very long time. I think that I find it quite mesmerising to watch, but I didn't grow up in a household that watched a lot of tennis. And I think that it is part of kind of family tradition to gather around the TV and, and watch those things. Though that since moving to the UK, it has entered my consciousness a lot more. And I think that Wimbledon, more so than anything else, for me, coincides with that moment of kind of the beginning of summer that holds so much promise. You know, you think about buying the punnet of strawberries and going into the fields. I mean, I don't necessarily go to Wimbledon itself, but it coincides with those kind of first few properly hot weekends of summer when you put the telly on and the tennis is on and you grab a towel and go down to the park. So it's the palette of sort of white and green and then, you know, the occasional squash strawberry around the place, <laughs> you think. But I also think that Fleur is really interesting in that piece because she's talking about the psychology, really, of sport in some ways and also how it kind of... It does show your character flaws in the sense... I like the fact she says that it took me ages to stop saying sorry. I do that on the court, and I think all English people do. They're shouting, sorry, down, <laughs> when actually, you know... It's not necessary to do that on court. And there's a lot of things that you're trying to kind of overcome and in a sense that it is about confidence, but it's also just like letting go and just the force of the game just propels you forward. And that is like life. You can't control it too much. Are you a competitive player? I'm quite competitive. <laughs> you know, I like doubles. I don't really want to own it. I think it's a very sort of fun and engaging. It's all about personality and kind of like... I don't know, springing about the place. I'm at the net. I'm a bit pokey. <laughs> <laughs> See, this is where I find it difficult. I find team sports or whenever you, the responsibility of an entity that is beyond yourself is involved, I find it really stressful. So I think I'd be more of a singles type of lady, which is also why I think my favourite sport is actually swimming because it is the utmost isolation, just all on me and not having really to deal with everyone else even around you when you're swimming in a lane in a pool how aware are you of other people around you it's just this kind of background noise and I quite like getting lost a little bit in that so no clay courts lots of waves for me please well that's all we have time for on this episode of Conflict Corner thank you to Chiara Ramella for keeping me company issue 7 of Conflict will be out in the middle of the month get your copy delivered to your door by subscribing at conflictmagazine.com Confect Corner is produced by Carlotta Ribello and Paige Reynolds. We'll be back next month with more, but until then, for me, Sophie Grove, goodbye and thanks for listening.